This week I have been thinking a bit about competition. Now let's be honest, how many of us enjoy a good competition? I do, I do, and I think there's a lot of competition that, that is good and, and fun and, and healthy. I, I think about a guy that said to his wife, hey, I uh, won a contest this week. It was a contest to see who had gained the most weight and lost the most hair. They, they didn't call it a contest. They called it a class reunion, but I won. <laughs> that, was, that was a competitive dude. I, I read about a guy that said, you know what, my dad, my dad, before he passed, was so doggone competitive. He said, I was there right before he passed away, and he looked at me, and he knew he was about to pass away, and he said, staring contest? Go. <laughs> maybe, maybe you got that kind of competition running in your blood. Maybe you know somebody who does. Competition can be fun. It can be healthy. We even had a little bit outside today. Todd saw my wound from my cedar tree, and he said, oh, I can do you one better. I, I once was using a chainsaw, and a piece of that chainsaw flew off and got in my eye, and so I said, okay, you win, man. That's fun, right? We're, we're having a good time out there. But how many of us know that sometimes this competitive drive within us can, can easily turn prideful, harmful, selfish, and sinful if we don't guard it? If we don't guard it? I, I think about yesterday morning at the dump in Prescott. We were taking some things out of our garage, cleaning up, and Got up there and there was a long line of vehicles trying to get out of there as there often is. And, and one guy cut in front of another car. And this was all right behind me. Long story short, looking in the rear view mirror, the guy that got cut off got out of his car and started uh, shouting niceties uh, to the man who had cut him off. And that man started sending niceties with his fingers out his window to that man, thankfully that's as far as it went, but th there's, a, there's a situation where the, the competitive drive got a little out of control. The lady at the booth I was talking to, she, she said, I don't know what's wrong with people, man. I don't know what's wrong with people. They, their desire to be first was uh, creating an almost dangerous situation. Truth is, in California this week, it did. You probably read about a six-year-old boy on a highway in California. Road raged between two vehicles, a gun was pulled, and long story short, because two people wanted so desperately to be in front of each other, and one pulled a gun out, a six-year-old was shot and killed. It can quickly turn sinful, prideful, harmful. And that kind of selfish drive finds itself in stark relief when we compare it to the kind of Savior that we have. We're going to see that today, Mark chapter 9, verse 30, if you have your Bibles. He's going to predict his own passion. He's going to remind his guys for the second time as a whole group in Mark why he came. Okay, verse 30, as they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. What was he teaching them? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, 
after three days, He will rise. He's reminding them of His purpose as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. As I look at His description to them, I think of the threefold title of Jesus. You may have heard of it before. Prophet, Priest, and King. Anybody heard that threefold description of Jesus? He is the consummate prophet of God, the consummate priest, the consummate king. Anybody ever listen to small town poets in the 90s? They had a song called Prophet, Priest, and King. Anybody besides me? Captain did. Just two of us, though. They must have been really small town. Check that song out, Prophet, Priest, and King about Jesus. It's really good. I see the prophet in here because he is predicting how he is going to die, and the fact that he's going to rise again. Most of us in this room, I dare say all of us, do not know how we're going to die. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He is a prophet, the consummate Word of God. He predicted it. He is all-knowing as God. He is also the priest. When it says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, often our minds race to Judas and the government mechanisms that work together to bring Jesus to the cross, and that's likely part of it. But most scholars also believe that this delivered goes beyond that to the very heart of God's providential plan. You look at passages like Isaiah 53, Jesus was delivered by God the Father as the Lamb of God, as the sacrifice. And in John 10, Jesus even said about Himself, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. So he is the consummate priest bringing himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Prophet, priest, but he's also king because he says after three days he will rise. Speaking to them of his coming power and victory in the resurrection. Prophet, priest, and king. He is everything they need, everything we need today. How would they respond to this? Verse 32 They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? (laughs) Well, if you've been with us a few weeks, you might be able to put the pieces together. You remember, as Jesus brought this up before, one time Peter rebuked him and said, Never, Lord. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. Do you think these guys forgot that? Like, none of these guys want to be that guy. Right? You can understand if they're a little hesitant to, to question or, or ask about this again. You might also think of Mark 8. They were in the boat and Jesus was talking about the fact that he's bread of life and they thought he was talking about physical bread after he had fed the masses and when he confronted them, he's asking them questions like, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Are you still so dull? Okay, none of them, none of them want to be that guy again. And then after... He comes down the Mount of Transfiguration and his nine guys down there were not able to cast out the demon because of their lack of prayer and faith. He's saying, how long am I to bear with you? None of them want want this response from Jesus. We would understand if that's what kept them from from asking. Now, all good teachers know something, though. You're thinking, hey, what is it? There's no such thing as as a stupid question, right? The teachers in the room say, hey, it would be better to be honest and say, I don't understand Jesus, even if I'm going to get a rebuke, teach me, than to stay in their their misunderstanding, but we'd forgive them. 
and maybe understand why they didn't. But some have suggested another reason that's possible for why they didn't ask more about this coming, delivering into the hands of men. Maybe they wanted to stay in the dark about this kind of sacrifice for their master and in their own lives. Maybe they did not want to hear more about his death and theirs. One man put it this way, like someone who has heard news from the doctor that is unpleasant and does not wish to know more, men still accept the parts of the Christian message which they like and which suit them and refuse to understand the rest. Maybe they didn't want to think about a master who suffered and followers who would suffer too. The context shows us they certainly had something other than suffering on their minds. How would they react after their master told them again of his coming death and resurrection? Verse 33, as they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Parents have been there sometimes, right? You suspect the kids are maybe into something they're not supposed to be into, so you call them in and say, what are you guys doing? What are you guys talking about out there? And you're looking at the shoes, looking anywhere, but and they're not answering. Sometimes that's an indicator that the kids know what? They're guilty. <laughs> so they're going to not answer that question. So Jesus, after talking about the cross, says, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He's talking about his death in their place and they're playing spiritual king of the mountain. I'm greater than you. Uh Where, Where did this come from? Maybe some of it possibly came from James and John. We don't know. We know in chapter 10 they're going to be coming to Jesus thinking they deserve special seats in the kingdom. Remember? They had gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Peter. These other nine guys didn't. They had been there when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. These other nine guys hadn't. Maybe maybe they're rubbing that in a little bit. They're having this discussion. Who's the greatest? Well, we were on the mountain with him. What were you guys doing? How come he didn't invite you? We don't know all the ins and outs, but they're playing spiritual king of the mountain posturing for position. They want the glory for themselves. Okay? Walter Wessel wrote this. He said, since questions of this sort, who were the greatest, who's the greatest? Since questions of this sort were common among the Jews of the day, the disciples' dispute shows how much they were influenced by the culture of their time. And I don't doubt that's the case. Let me ask you a question. Do you think this particular moment in history and this particular place in history and this particular people in history is the only place that ever wrestle with this question, who is the greatest? When have men not fought over this question? And women, who is the greatest? What time has it had this issue, whether it's the, the high school boy putting notches on his belt for every lady he's with, or the businessman striving to have the most money, or the, the person seeking the most power or popularity, 
so they can wield it over those around them. This question has plagued mankind ever since the fall in the garden. This competitive drive to be the greatest. And churches are not immune. We must beware. I read a true account of a church split. Big, messy one some time ago that that went to court, lawsuits, the works, ended up in two different churches at the end. And as they started to research, where did this begin? Where did this all start? You know what it traced back to? A potluck dinner at the church where some of the kids were volunteering to serve the food. And as one of the elders of the church went through the line, he got a slightly smaller piece of meat than he felt he was worthy of and was embittered by it. And that one little spark fanned into flame, division among people, led to a church split and court. Beware the sinful desire to be greatest over those around you. Jesus knew it was time for a lesson for His guys. Verse 35 says He sat down. A common position for a Jewish rabbi. He sat down and called the twelve. And He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now His guys, a lot like you and I, appreciate an object lesson. But He's going to give them one. Says he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And we have to put ourselves in their culture to really grasp this, because most of us in this room value children, we believe they're gifts from the Lord. In this society, great men did not commonly spend copious amounts of time with children. Great men. They have more important matters to discuss. You know who spent a lot of time with children in addition to their mothers? Servants. Servants spent a lot of time caring for and loving children. And what's Jesus saying to them? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He said, if you adopt the attitude of a servant towards the least of these, even a child, I will see it as unto me. When you serve them, when you love them, put it on my tab. I will see it as unto me. Leads us to ask today, who are the least of these that the supposedly great do not have time or concern to serve. And it leads me to the idea of compartmentalization. I love to compartmentalize my garage. That's what I was doing yesterday. Evan was having a rock sale out on the driveway. And I was cleaning and compartmentalizing my garage. He made about seven bucks. The tools go here. 
the bikes go here. The Christmas stuff goes here. And a big part of cleaning is making sure those sections don't touch. They, they get compartmentalized. And that works okay in a garage. That does not always work in our Christian lives. But we try. We try to compartmentalize, to separate, to isolate various areas of our walk with God. Don't let them touch. I think about when they asked Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? What was the first one? Yes, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We put that in a box and I can nail that down, but sometimes we forget there's a second one. The second is like it, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and we sometimes think we can compartmentalize these. I can love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but yeah, just love, love my neighbor as myself. Oh, man. Can you do number one without doing number two? The one you're supposed to love with all your heart commanded you commanded me to do number two. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Let me go further. You, you can't do one. I can't do one in my own power. It requires the, the power of the Spirit within us, and it also requires zeroing in on just how much God loves me. What does John say? We love because He first loved us. And all of a sudden you start to see how this is all connected. Do I have that kind of Love for God that flows into a love for neighbors, even the least of these, that leads me to serve them in loving and practical ways. I see it in this church all the time. That's one of the privileges of, of being a pastor here. I saw one, one of our Wednesday night groups last month. They knew of a, a, an individual in the church that needed some landscaping help that he was not able to take care of. That group rallied together on a Saturday, went over there and made that guy's yard sparkle. I love that. I, I saw it in Dave uh, just this week on Wednesday before he came to the prayer meeting. You know what Dave was doing? He was helping the neighbor on the other side of the duplex move, load a U-Haul, and he invited some people uh, from the church to, to join him as well. That's what Christ followers look like. They love their neighbors as themselves, even the least of these. But these guys were in process, as are many of us, all of us, posturing for position. They wanted the glory for themselves, but that wasn't all. They also wanted to protect their precious purchase. They had a pretty privileged thing going on with Jesus, right? They're, they're traveling around with Him. They're the, the twelve. And it's not just that they wanted the glory for themselves. I believe at least some of them did not want to share that glory with anyone else. They didn't want to share it. Watch verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
Now this is John. John's in process. He had come to be known as the Apostle of Love. Before that, he had a nickname with his brother. You know what it was? Sons of Thunder. Yeah, these are the same two brothers that at another time, Jesus is traveling and they're going to head to a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village didn't strike them as very welcoming. So they come to Jesus and say, hey, you want us to call down fire on that village? Yeah, that's John and James. And here, they don't like the idea of someone outside their group casting out demons. Did they expect Jesus to be glad? Like, do they expect him to be like, boy, I am, thank you guys. Thank you for shutting that down. I really appreciate you looking out for me. Is that what they expect? But I asked the question, was it really about Jesus primarily for them? Or was it about protecting the unique and privileged position they shared with Jesus? What did they say? He was not following us. Us, right? Many have also asked the question, maybe this came from an insecurity, because what, what had happened with the father with a demon-possessed boy? Were the disciples able to cast the demon out? No. Their lack of turning to God and faith and prayer left them ineffective, and here's somebody else doing it. Maybe they're a little insecure, which sometimes leads to jealousy, because they're doing something right here that we just couldn't do. Here's the deal that Jesus is going to teach them. God's kingdom is bigger than us. It is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than this whole church. Verse 39, Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And it leads us to ask, how's my attitude when God uses others outside of my own life, my own family, my own church, etc.? Now, none of us would lie and say, we never struggle with this kind of thing. We're human, right? How do you overcome the mindset that they were likely falling into there? Let me offer a couple thoughts. Sometimes God uses us powerfully in this situation or that situation. When He uses you that way, you bring that glory right back to Jesus because it's His. Say, thank you, Jesus, for what you just did there. The glory is yours. But it works the other way too. When we face insecurity, when we look at our lives and we... What do we do? Sometimes we start comparing ourselves with each other. With this person, that person, that family, that family, this church, that church. We take our insecurity to Him as well. Because you know what? Our security as believers in Jesus Christ is not found in what you did yesterday or the day before. It is to be found in Him. and Him alone. That's why earlier when the disciples had gone out and been used mightily of God to cast out demons, and they were rejoicing. Do you remember what Jesus told them in Luke chapter 10, verse 20? He said, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
That security comes in that relationship with God through the blood of Jesus at the cross, which he had just been telling them about, but they got all these other things swirling around. Look, here's the deal. The, the kingdom of God is not all about your service or my service. It's, it, it's bigger than that. Think about some of the New Testament passages you may or may not know. Read 1 Corinthians 12. You've got to think about the idea of spiritual gifts. How, how many believers have at least one spiritual gift? Every one of them. Every one of them, right? And why are those gifts given? Number one, for the glory of God. And number two, for the good of the body. So when we realize that every believer on planet earth right now is part of the same team, every Bible-believing, Christ-following church is on the same team, we, we start to get that bigger picture. I think about knowledge. That's an interesting one because we're called to grow in wisdom and knowledge. He's given us His Word. It is our daily bread. But even with that, we must be careful as believers how we use the knowledge He has imparted to us. Did you know that? Did you know that? What does 1 Corinthians 8, 1 say? Knowledge puffs up. But what? Love builds up. And I think it's good for every one of Christ's followers to ask the question, am I a puffer? Or a builder. And I ask, am I a puffer? I think about the puffer fish, right? They get agitated, they get angry, they get scared, and poof, And nobody wants to hang around then, right? I'm out of here. Is that, is that how we are with the knowledge we gain in our walk with Christ? I'm a puffer. I'm arrogant and caustic with it. And poof. Or am I a builder? Do I use the knowledge that God is pouring into me through His Word to build up? those other people around me. Romans 15.2, Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I want to go back here. There are others who will make a contribution to God's kingdom besides you, besides me, besides us. They will receive a blessing by serving Christ, maybe even by serving you. Or serving me. And that's the real test of humility. When we admit that we need the service of others in this body and as a body from other bodies as we all work together. Right? What does Jesus say in verse 41? Truly I say to you, whoever gives you, He's looking at His disciples, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. There are others who will gain reward by serving you and serving me. And we need to admit that we need one another. This is a common thread throughout Scripture. The, the pride of people that loves to divide us up into groups and see which one's better. Think about 1 Corinthians 1. Like There's this group over here. We follow Apollos. We like the way he teaches. Oh, we follow Paul, the apostle, and then over here you got the, the really spiritual people. We follow Christ. What, is, what does Paul say to each of those groups in 1 Corinthians 1? 
Is Christ divided? Answer, no, he is not. I think about Paul's magnanimous spirit when he was in jail of all places, under house arrest. And there are others who out of envy and ambition are out there preaching the gospel, trying to to climb the ladder above Paul while he's in jail. Put it in modern parlance. What was his attitude? As long as the gospel's preached. Of all the places he could have got bitter and salty, especially about those with bad motives, his biggest concern was that the gospel of Jesus was preached because Paul knew it was bigger than him. It was about Jesus and His kingdom. I think about this, and I also think about one other thing where we sometimes trip up with this, celebrating with those that God uses that aren't me, that aren't my family, that aren't in my church. Romans 12, 15. One part of it says what? Mourn with those who mourn. And I see many Christians who are good at this by God's grace. They show mercy to the hurting and God puts that care in there and they go out and mourn with those who are mourning and help them. And that's good. I think sometimes there's a trap to be aware of with that one because we know that also looks good. And we got to ask ourselves as we do that, am I doing this out of sheer love for Christ and this individual or do I honestly enjoy the accolades that come because other people know about it? It's good to check our hearts. But there's another part of that verse that I think is often more challenging, surprisingly. You know what it is? Rejoice with those who rejoice. One can be a bit more difficult at times because it touches on what? Our pride. God did this with them, but not me. God did this with that group, but not our group. And that's when the test hits. Do we really care about God's kingdom? Or are we more concerned about our own? Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. As I think about Jesus sharing about the cross, why He came, He's on His way to Jerusalem from this point forward. This is His last stop in Capernaum at Peter's hometown. He's heading to Jerusalem. And I see His guys posturing for position and looking to protect their precious perches. I I see irony. Especially when you look back to Peter who said, Never, Lord, don't go to the cross. They're arguing that he doesn't have to go to the cross. And then in their behavior, in their attitudes, they proceed to show us exactly why he does have to go to the cross. They are sinners in need of a Lord and Savior. We, apart from Christ, are sinners in need of a Lord and Savior. As I think about all the things they were wrestling for, the the glory, the position, and the fact that they had the precious Lamb of God in their midst telling them, I am who you need. I am all you need. I think about one closing story. Last night at dinner, we had our quiet time at the table and we're reading a, a book it's called Fuel for Your Faith by Joe White with the kids. And he shared a story about a wealthy man named Bradford. Bradford worked his butt off 
and his earthly kingdom grew and grew and grew and he and his wife were happy together save one thing they desperately wanted a child of their own and yet she had not got pregnant year after year after year finally after years she became pregnant and gave birth to a son the son had some serious health issues if you fast forward to the age of 13 he succumbed and passed away Shortly after that, his mother passed away and then the father passed away and the whole estate went up for auction. Many wealthy people showed up to, to swoop up the goods of this man's wondrous estate. But the beginning of the auction, the auctioneer surprised everyone by pulling out a, a painting of their 13-year-old son. He said, this is the first item to be auctioned. And he held it up. Started at $5 and no one bid. No one bid. No one bid until a maid who had worked on the property and helped raise the boy raised her hand and said, I'll take it. And she went up there to, to get the painting of the son and the auctioneer said, wait, there's something on the back of the painting. And he took the envelope off, opened it up and read it. And to paraphrase it said, whoever values this painting of my son enough to purchase it will receive my entire estate. All because she valued the son. And I think about that and I think of all that these disciples were striving for and he was right there telling them, I am the way, <laughs> the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's all in me, guys. As we prepare for communion to remember the Son who made the way to the Father, I want to invite us into a time of prayer. Aaron's going to come up. The time of gratitude for you to tell Jesus, tell God the Father, the Spirit whom He sent. Just thank God for this mighty salvation that the Son gave His life for on the cross. For forgiveness of sins. Sins washed clean and resurrection, victory, power in the Spirit. But in the midst of that gratitude, I also want you to ask a couple questions. Have I received the Son as my Lord and Savior? Have I turned to Him in faith? And if I have, Lord, show me this morning by Your Holy Spirit. Shine a light in my heart. Show me anywhere this week where I've been so busy posturing for my position that I've made my glory a higher priority than yours. And I've stepped on others around me to achieve it. Lord, forgive me as you point out those places. Lord, forgive me for any place my, my view of your kingdom is far too narrow. It's about me, my family, my church. And I forget you're working around this globe Lord, help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Our brothers and sisters, whether on the other side of this city or around the world, realize that this is for Your glory, Your kingdom. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Thank You for 
his patience with those 12. It encourages us because we need that same patience as we grow and learn. Help us be more like our Savior, willing to serve the least of these. Wherever you lead, put them on our heart this morning, Lord. There are people in our lives this morning who need served with your love, your gospel. Lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.